basically, when I got started in 2017, I try to go on kind of a listening tour where I'd fly from Toronto to New York or San Francisco once every four to six months and try to book off as many coffees as I could with as many of these people as I could. If I said, hey, Sid, you know, I just started a hedge fund. Do you know any great public companies that you're really impressed by these days or ones that you're not impressed by? You know, you'll probably rattle off five ones you like, five you don't like. And if I started hearing the same company again and again, then I found that there was no better buy signal for me than just immediately going out, doing some research, but putting money into that. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is your host, Sid Finkelstein. Well, here we are at the last official episode of season two. When I started this podcast, really in ancient history, meaning pre-COVID days, I wanted to have interesting conversations with fascinating people, providing insights and, you know, just stories to listen to for my audience, for you. I learned a few things along the way, and this might be an appropriate time to share some of them. You know, having literally interviewed many hundreds of CEOs and other senior executives for research on my books over the years, I knew that people like to talk. People like to share their story, their point of view. So I wasn't worried when I started the podcast that I wouldn't be able to find really interesting people to invite onto the SIDCast, interact with me and to share their stories with me and with you. But over time, you know, what's interesting is the word has gotten out and I've had more and more people contact me asking if they could be on the show. I won't lie, that is very gratifying, but not everyone is the right fit. And I'm sure you'll notice that I haven't really had anyone on who was just looking to promote a new book or something like that. Of course, I'm not against new books, obviously, but the picture I have in my head for what I've been trying to do is this. Imagine you're at a dinner party. And again, this might take a bit more imagination because we haven't done that in a long time, but you're at a dinner party and there are elegant place settings, and there's a name card with your spot at your seat around the table. And you've been seated next to a couple of people you don't know. The wine is served. Maybe there's a pretty little elegant butterleaf salad in front of you. And you start chatting with the man or the woman next to you. And imagine that they're not looking around the table while you're talking. They're not looking over you or past you, but they're looking right at you. And they're totally interested in what you have to say. And they're genuinely interested in telling you something about themselves, not to impress you, but for a much simpler and infinitely really more enjoyable reason. They like talking to you. And so you're talking for the most essential reasons, because we are people. And that's how we engage with each other in conversation, in community. That's what my aim is on the SIDCast, a real conversation with someone you don't know really well or at all. Little did I know how important such conversations would be during COVID when there's really no chance for you know, these encounters and dinner parties, no chance to talk to people in any really engaging way other than through Zoom, I guess. And no doubt I've hit the right notes on some occasions in these conversations, maybe some other times less so, but I hope you've enjoyed these times enough that you've been looking forward to each episode coming out every Monday. And this is episode number 90. It's definitely a number I didn't think I'd get to when I started. But now I know that there are really a lot of people that enjoy this, maybe almost as much as I do. So I'm going to take a break to reload, catch up on a couple other projects, get ready to come back stronger in the spring with season three, which, by the way, I'm thinking about adding a mini series within season three. 
you know, something a little bit different. There'll be more on this as, you know, season three begins. But at this point, what I'll say is the idea is to talk to someone two or three different times across several months, following their story in real time as it happens, so to speak. I've already started that process by having first conversations with several people, young entrepreneurs for the most part. And, you know, I'll check in with them later so that I can and, you know, you can as well follow their journey in as close to real time as you can in a podcast. Today's episode, episode number 90, is with my old friend Eric Jackson. Eric's career was made for the Sidcast. Although I didn't know that he would have planned it quite that way, he's done a lot of different things. All intellectual in nature, stumbled and hit some dead ends, but has evolved into one of the most exciting stock pickers in the country. Eric rents a small hedge fund specializing in tech, and through his insight, his network, and his research approach, he's been able to identify several smaller tech companies with huge upside potential. His fund has returned about 150% to investors just in 2020, which is to say that if you had put $1,000 in his hedge fund at the beginning of last year, the beginning of 2020, which you know you can't really do because there's a minimum investment, but let's just say you put $1,000 with Eric at the beginning of 2020, by the end of the year, that $1,000 would have been worth $2,500. And that's pretty good, isn't it? There's something about Eric, however, that you know we talked about in the podcast, but I think is really interesting to contemplate and to comment on right now. A part of the reason for that is it's personal, since Eric and I both started our careers in virtually identical fashions. We both got our PhDs from Columbia University in the management department, working under the legendary professor and my personal super boss, Don Hambrick. And of course, Eric attended Columbia, to be clear, probably 10 years after I did because he's younger than I am, but we both had a chance to work with Don as well. And working with Don Hambrick is your PhD advisor. And a PhD advisor, if you don't know, is the most important professor in your career because the work you do together becomes your calling card to actually get a job once you graduate. It's akin to working with any true master of their field. Total dedication, extreme competence, intellectual curiosity, unparalleled work ethic, and a knack for seeing around corners. This latter skill, by the way, is not just important for research. It's pretty important when you're a stock picker as well. In any event, when Eric graduated from Columbia, rather than go into an academic career as I did, he went to work for a startup. This might not be that unusual if you get your PhD at Stanford University, but it certainly was unusual a few decades ago at Columbia University. Eric's path was not linear, not direct to where he is today. But I did say it was personal because of the path I didn't take I like Eric's curiosity. I like how he's used his skill set in different ways, things I've done myself in my own way, but always under an academic house for me, Dartmouth College. And, you know, the paths we don't take could be a dangerous topic to get into because regret is one of the saddest emotions to have. In my experience, while someone might regret missing an opportunity, however, even if they took that opportunity and they failed, they don't experience the same emotion, the same type of regret. We might regret failing at something, but the depth and level of regret is at an entirely different level when we didn't even try, which is why experimentation is so powerful, whether for careers or even for relationships. Trying, risking, living, these things should make us proud, not sad. It's a bit of a tangent, but not long ago I was thinking about the path I've gone on and the implications of that path. In a nutshell, it meant leaving Canada. And by the way, Eric Jackson is Canadian as well, yet another similarity between the two of us. But I didn't just move first to New York and LA and now for quite a while in Hanover and Hampshire, but lived a really different lifestyle than what I would have done had I stayed back in Canada, no matter what my career would have been there, even if I had been an academic in Canada. And the implication, you know, kind of what I'm getting at is that lifelong friends that you make starting in grade school or middle school or high school. Well, for me, there was a big break with almost all of those friends because we never or barely interacted once I left. 
One big exception is my college friends, mostly because I've been lucky, one or two of them are incredibly social and have the ability to bring people together. And I count as a tremendous blessing to still be friends with people from college that I knew really 40 years ago. Yet it's not the same as actually living in a place with the same people, watching your kids grow up together, sharing holidays and special events face to face. These are things I didn't do because I was traveling in some corner of the world, working with leaders, doing research, speaking at conferences, and all the rest that academics with unreasonably high aspirations tend to do. So sometimes I realize that I did give up something. Well, let me rephrase that. I know I gave up something. And that something is very good. But I gave it up for a different life and a different lifestyle. And deep down, I know that I really didn't have any choice. It was really the only choice I can make given who I am as a person, what I wanted to do in my own life. But, you know, reflections on choices made and not made can be healthy as long as we don't fixate on what might have been. Which brings me back to Eric Jackson. Eric is the president and portfolio manager of EMJ Capital, a hedge fund he founded in 2017. He was previously involved as an investor in Yahoo. And actually, you should Google that, very well known as an investor in Yahoo and became an activist at Yahoo for a long period of time. He was a co-founder and portfolio manager at Iron Fire Capital for a number of years. He was president of Jackson Leadership Systems in the early 2000s, and I worked with him there for a while. And he was vice president of business development at Voice Genie Technologies, that startup that he went to right out of Columbia Business School from 2000 to 2004. He has his PhD in management from Columbia and a BA in English literature from McGill University. Really interesting story, a great conclusion to season two. Here's episode 90 with Eric Jackson. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein here with my old friend, Eric Jackson. Hi, Eric. How you doing, Sid? I am good. I'm a little bit cold up here in New Hampshire, but I'm okay. I mean, there's just so much going on and you've been involved in so many parts of the tech industry, investments, entrepreneurship, academia, actually. I think you and I first met when you were getting your PhD at Columbia, maybe a decade after I did. Did you work for a startup right away or was it venture capital? I can't remember. I worked for a startup. Yeah. I broke my RR advisor's heart, Don Hambrick, by not going on and becoming a business school professor like you. And I got an opportunity to join this startup in Toronto. I signed my deal in March of 2000 to join this company called Voice Genie that was doing basically like Siri and Alexa type voice applications. And at that time, they said, this has been 20 years in the making. And now the technology is really set to take off. And it only took another 20 years for that to happen. Yeah, it but, took another 20 uh, yeah. But I, re I remember driving home after signing my deal to join them. I was the 18th employee and I was all had visions of like IPOs in my head and so forth. But then uh, I heard like the Nasdaq was crashing that day. <laughs> in oh, that March, was March, 2000, March 2000, right? Yeah. So luckily for me, it was not just like some website. It was actually a real company where the technology was spun out of AT&T Bell Labs. And I was there for four years. And I made met some great friends. And even just a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a Zoom with a guy who I competed with when I was at Voice Genie. He was kind of like the Mark Zuckerberg of his time. His name was Angus Davis. He didn't even make it to Harvard to drop out. I think he dropped out of one of these prestigious New England boarding schools to move to Silicon Valley, where he immediately joined Netflix when he was like 17 or something. So they started a company called Tell Me that was doing the same voice application stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they had all the Silicon Valley investors in them. And they rode through some hard times, you know, after the dot-com crisis and stuff. But they stuck it out and they had a great exit to Microsoft. 
And so he started a company, I remember a couple of years later, that was doing software for restaurants, both sit-down restaurants and stand-up restaurants, sort of like the payment systems that those small to medium-sized businesses use. And uh, it was kind of a wonky business. I didn't have like pay any attention to it. But then I was just doing research for stock ideas in my own fund. And I came across this company. It was actually from Montreal, where you're from, called Lightspeed. And I was like, man, this is a wonky little company. I don't know much about it. It seems like it could be like a mini Shopify in the making here. But like, who in my Rolodex can I like call up and, you know, get educated better on this industry? And then I remember, oh, Angus, you know, he's normally in Rhode Island. And now he's part of a big PC firm. So I did a Zoom with him. He brought me up to speed. He actually liked, liked lights. It turned out a couple of weeks later, his old company got acquired by this Montreal company. So he ended up being very familiar with, with the space. And yeah. So. so, you know, it's the network, the Rolodex, which is a word that anyone under probably 35 doesn't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just dated myself. <laughs> their contact, their contact list, uh, right. <laughs> uh, is really interesting. You know, you're an investor. You have your own hedge fund, and you've done really well. And we'll talk about some of those investments and kind of what you're seeing looking forward as well. But how do you go about selecting a company to invest in? Actually, let me take a step back. In your fund now, how many stocks do you have? Well, it's a combination of longs and shorts, and it's typically at the moment, if I had to guess, I think it's around twenty-ish long stocks. And probably, I'd say maybe 10 short names, companies where I'm short, where I think their stock is going to go down over time. So believe it or not, that's a more concentrated portfolio than some hedge funds. Yeah. Sometimes you see like 100 names in the portfolio. It's predominantly just me you know, wearing the investor hat. So it's hard to follow 100 companies. So I try to put you know, my effort into finding my best ideas, making them larger sized positions in the portfolio. And then if I'm right, they can end up growing a lot. If I'm wrong, I can get exposed and hurt. But that's my style and it's worked since I started in 2017. In 2017. So how do you figure out what you want to invest in? Let's talk about the long the companies you think will do well in the future. How do you figure that out? There's so many. You specialize in tech and there are so many startups and, and IPOs that happen and it changes so much. And it's really a broad industry, it's not an industry. It's a sector. It's a giant sector in the economy. How do you think about it? Yeah, you're right. There are massive niches within tech, obviously, and you could mm -hmm. be an expert in any one of those niches. I would say when I first started in 2017, I did rely on the Rolodex a lot. I had like two sources of great tech contacts from my 20 year career odyssey that took me to this point. And, you know, one was that sort of four year stint at Voice Genie right at the beginning where I met people like Angus and, you know, I met other great people. Like the guy who was the first investor in Voice Genie was a guy named Jeff Horan from a New York-based VC firm called Insight Venture Partners. And at the time, he was like a fresh-faced 30-something kid, you know, spun out of Goldman Sachs to start this fund. Nobody knew him. Now, today, like, I think the firm Insight's raised like 11 funds, $40 billion or something like this. It's just incredible how successful. So, I, you know, I tried to stay in touch with all the people that I knew from that world. And then, as I think you might remember, Sid, like maybe about 12 or 13 years ago, I did like a quixotic activist campaign aimed at Yahoo. I didn't really change history for Yahoo. Yahoo sort of ended up bumbling along even after my best efforts. But I did meet a ton of people through that whole experience from the tech world. Mostly actually people that were working within Yahoo who were actually of similar mind to me, but they couldn't say the same things that I was saying on the outside of the organization for fear of career reprisal and all this kind of stuff. So instead, because they thought there were some merits to my ideas, they would end up reaching out and talking to me and feeding me ideas you know, saying, you know, Eric, you know, I thought what you said was great, but you said this, this, and this, and you didn't really emphasize this. And if you mentioned this, the CEO, Terry, 
he might pay him a little bit more attention or he might be more open to considering your ideas and all this kind of stuff. So I ended up building great relationships. One of the things that was interesting is that when the tech world blew up after 2000, if you were a tech interested person and you weren't just going to go back to banking or move back to consulting on the East Coast, you really had to find a port in the storm and you weren't going to join a startup in 2003 or four. So Yahoo became a great magnet for talent because it was seen as at the time, they were very secure. They were one of the winners in the tech world. So there was a guy there, Jeff Weiner, who worked closely with the CEO. He's now gone on to become the head of LinkedIn. He's one of the heir apparents to Satya Nadella at Microsoft. There's a guy who I'm good friends with named Bradley Horowitz, who had come into Yahoo, who was sort of overseeing some small acquisitions that they'd done, like Flickr, uh, which was big at the time. But he left, he joined Google, he started Google Photos, and he's still at Google today. So the guy who started Slack, Stuart Butterfield, was just sort of hanging out. He had sold Flickr to Yahoo and he was doing some stuff. So there were some amazing people that I had the opportunity to interact with and stay in touch with. And so basically, you know, to answer your question, when I got started in 2017, I tried to go on kind of a listening tour where I'd fly from Toronto to New York or San Francisco once every four to six months and try to book off as many coffees as I could with as many of these people as I could. Mm -hmm. And I tried to steer towards more engineer types or more product oriented types, less people who came from my background, which is when I worked at the at Voishini, which was business development, because I find like business development type people, they're smooth talkers, <laughs> they can spin whatever story they want to spin. The engineers and the product people are a little bit more uh, just the facts, ma'am. If I said, hey, Sid, you know, I just started a hedge fund. Do you know any great public companies that you're really impressed by these days mm -hmm. or ones that you're not impressed by? You know, you'll probably rattle off five ones you like, five you don't like. And if I started hearing the same company again and again, then I found that there was no better buy signal for me than just immediately going out, doing some research, but putting money into that. So that's how I came across a company in 2018 called Twilio, where at the time, I think they were like a $5 billion market cap company. They were trading at around $23 a share when I bought them in February 2018. They were kind of doing what Voice Genie did, but you know, 20 years later, if you go to a restaurant and you get a text alert on your phone that says, hey, Sid, you're coming here tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m., press Y to confirm that you're coming it's likely that they're the ones that are powering that customer service transaction for you. So they went from $23 in 2018 to they're trading around $430 today or something like that, between $60 and $70 billion. They've just been on a massive run. I think it's sort of 17x or 18x from the original investment. So that was a lot of idea generation in the beginning. It's shifted a little bit just in the last couple of years, because obviously when you're doing this day after day and you're getting deeper into Twilio or deeper into some other wonky tech company, you start to read about other companies that, you know, people that they compete with or allies or what have you and stuff. So there's been more just idea generation that comes across from reading research reports and stuff that, that I've done more recently. Eric, when you made that investment in Twilio, so that was early on. And of course, when you make an investment like that, you don't know that it's going to be a 17x. You dream about it, but you don't know that. And that was one of your earliest, I take it, investments. So were you nervous about this? No, not nervous. My philosophy is I really am trying to look for the, I call it like the next generation fang stocks. So I tend not to invest in the Facebooks and Netflixes of the world. The ones who are great companies, but now they're so big. They're like 100 billion to, in Apple's case, like over 2 trillion market cap. Because I want to find ones that are sort of maybe 5 to 25 billion market cap size, where I think they're just getting started on their growth trajectory. And I'm going to participate in that. And I want to hold them for a long period of time. So when I did get into Twilio, one thing that I'm good at is I'm pretty good at putting on my rose-colored glasses 
and kind of seeing the optimistic scenario. I did see that with Twilio, but I didn't see $400 optimistic. You know, my optimistic scenario in their case was like, if everything goes well, they do this and they do that and they get valued in this favorable way from Wall Street. Maybe like three years from now, they could be like $180, you know, 180, which would have been like a 10x over where I invested at. So when it got to 150, what I noticed along the way is that typically what happens is, you know, a company reports quarterly. And if they're on a roll, like the stock really moves when they report their earnings. And so they had one good earnings report, the stock was up 20%. You've reported another good earnings and stock keeps going. What I noticed along the way is that typically you'd see from other investors in Twilio, there's always this pressure, I guess, and a lot of cases just put on the investors themselves or maybe put on by the investors, investors to take your profits, to take your money off the table. Like, okay, you you had a good run. You know, you doubled your money on Twilio. It went from 20 to 40. Okay, time to get out. Goes from 40 to 60. Well, you had a really good run. Time to get out. So there's pressure that comes with that. There's pressure feeling like, am I being too greedy? Can this company really fulfill, you know, what my research or my original hypothesis when I got into the stock said that it could get to? And in my case, like when it got to like 150, I was like, okay, now I'm probably being too greedy. So I did get out of them for a period of time. And luckily, I got back into them. I missed one of the jumps that they had. And I got back in, say, like when it was 200 or 210 or something. And I've had it since. But I guess my biggest regrets since I started this hedge fund have come where I've let the pressure of the moment to just get out of a stock because things are happening in the markets and seeing your profits kind of on paper disappear in front of your eyes and all this kind of stuff. At the same time I got into Twilio, I got into two other stocks, Shopify at around like 150 bucks and Roku at around 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. And today Shopify is, I think it's like 1600 bucks. I think Roku is now like 440, 450, something like that. But in the fall of 2018, I don't know if you remember this, Sid, Jay Powell was the new Fed chair at the time. He started jawboning and saying that there was a need not just to raise interest rates once or twice, but like, you know, basically for the foreseeable future. On a regular basis, he was sort of implying that he was going to continue hiking interest rates. And so from about September of 2018 till the end of December, the stock market and especially tech stocks took a dive. And so I had been having a good year. On paper, I'd had all these profits from Twilio and from Shopify and Roku. But then I started seeing them go away. I ended up getting out of Roku and Shopify. I luckily kept hold of Twilio and thinking to myself like, oh, I'll just get back into them later. I'm just going to take a pause here. I got into Roku at 40, went up to 80, but now it's down to 40. I'll get out now and then I'll get in when it's 20 or something. But I missed it. And then you miss it. And then you say, well, I'll wait for it to come back. Now it's trading at 40. I'll wait for it to come. You know, and I ended up missing both opportunities. The bus left the station and I was on it. So that's where the pressure comes in. It's just trying to balance your view of the world, your faith in your original research with what might be going on in the general markets at the time, all the pressure that comes with trying to have a good year, trying to look good on paper to investors or potential investors. So anyway, that's the stuff that I've had to learn to juggle. Yeah. And actually what you're describing is what retail investors deal with also, maybe not quite a sophisticated manner, but it's the same type of thing. And when something starts to go down, you start to see a loss and you know all about loss aversion, of course, and how painful that is for people. You see people, I mean, even in the um, financial crisis, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. people sold, a lot of people sold and it all came back and came back more. And it's just so uh, difficult. You know, I remember talking to someone, he's a restaurateur, a friend of mine, and he was proud that he had sold before the crash. Okay. Went down a little, but he got up. But the problem was you have to get back in. And that's why you know, this thing about market timing, all my finance professor friends think that, you know, this is totally nuts. 
because they believe in efficient markets. And I'm going to ask you about that too, because you do not. Otherwise, you can't be a hedge fund investor. But this notion that if you're going to time the market, you got to be right twice when you get in and when you get out is really hard to do. And I think you reminded me about that in your examples, because you know, you got in and then you got out, maybe not at the optimal time. And then other times you've held on for a very, very long time. It's got to be much more of an art than a science. But that's a big reason why I think many rank and file kind of retail investors don't do very well. They're too busy trying to time the market. What do you think about uh, what happened GameStop not that long ago, where it went from, what did it go from? Like from nothing to $400 or something like this? Or That's another regret. I didn't get into GameStop, but I remember looking at it last October and it was eight bucks. But it was up from two bucks at the, the, the pandemic lows in the spring of last year. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were also saying, hey, it's had a great run. It's like, you know, whatever, 4X from the lows and stuff. But there was a Canadian guy, actually, from Quebec who started Chewy a few years ago. He ended up selling Chewy to, I think it was PetSmart. And even though he made some money, he didn't make a lot of money, considering how Chewy has gone on to be you know, kind of the dominant pets.com of our time. He didn't make out as well. So now he's down in Florida somewhere with his dad hanging out and sort of thinking of his next big thing. And so I remember hearing there was a big Bloomberg article last fall about how he was eyeing GameStop. And he had this vision of turning GameStop, which was this string of retail video game stores to an e-commerce giant to take on Amazon some capacity. A lot of people obviously immediately dismissed that idea and said it was crazy talk, but he had been lobbying his own little activist campaign to try to get on the board. So I remember looking at it at eight bucks last fall and then didn't pull the trigger. But in January this year, the board announced that it had come to an agreement with him and they put him on the board. And what happened is this, the craziness then ensued where the short float was over 100%. So basically, the longs who own all the stock out there, there were more people shorting it than there were people holding the stock wall. I guess that's a different story, like how that has happened and so forth. But it ended up becoming this sort of massive short covering squeeze where you had hedge funds like Melvin Capital was the one that everybody talked about who had been coming off a stellar year led by this kind of young guy who was a protege of Stevie Cohen's, another famous hedge fund manager who'd started his hedge fund maybe seven years ago or something. Now, I think it was over $12.5 billion in assets when 2021 started, but he was heavily short GameStop. And so as the stock continued to rise, and it first went to 15 and 20 and then 40, and then every day it seemed to double, the highest it ever got was just below $500. So he and others had to cover their short positions, which of course led to kind of more fuel to the fire driving the stock price up. Now it's reversed. And I think it's below 50 bucks again now. And so all the retail investors who got into it, suddenly seeing it go down, they got into it at maybe 400, you know, when it hits 200, you start to panic and right. <laughs> say, I, I don't know what the I was panic, The panic will start before it goes from 400 to 200. For many people that are not experienced investors, it goes from 400 to 398 and it's a bad, bad situation. <laughs> But I guess I have a couple of thoughts on the whole episode, which is one is that I think it's preposterous that all the politicians trying to position themselves like they're going to hold hearings on this and do anything about it. Because who was really hurt here? You know, was there misinformation that was being spread around on the Reddit boards about this? I, I don't think so. It's just people just talking. Like 20 years ago, there were the Yahoo stock message boards where people were saying, you know, go buy you know, pets.com or whatever. If people want to rally around and buy a stock, they can do that. I don't think there's much to fix here. I also don't think that this is the start of some big movement. And I say that because when I did my Yahoo thing 12 years ago, 13 years ago, where I was like this little retail investor, and I used Facebook groups and YouTube videos and blogs to try to launch this activist campaign, there were a lot of people that wrote about it in the press. And people were saying, well, maybe Eric's, you know, stumbled across the next big thing. 
you know, social media is going to change the world and change Wall Street and bring hedge funds to their knees and all this kind of stuff. And it didn't. And I don't think it will. (laughs) I don't think it will this time either. I mean, the establishment is the establishment for a reason. And I think people are still going to want to put their money with hedge funds and stuff. I think hedge funds are going to be a lot, I would say, wiser about their short positions. And I think some were just kind of a little bit lazy and that, oh, well, you know, here's an easy short. Nothing's ever going to happen here. And obviously, that was proven wrong. But the one positive, you know, you hear some people say, oh, we've got to protect the little guys, all the retail investors, kind of what you're saying about efficient markets. Oh, isn't this terrible? People actually opening Robinhood accounts and trading their own money. Oh, that's awful. They should only be putting their money in passive ETFs that track this S&P 500. Haven't they learned? There's always an air of superiority in this argument, I think, of like, you know, we're so smart. We figured it out. Nobody can make money. There's never a dollar just sitting on the ground. You just have to put your money with Vanguard, you know, and get your 2% a year returns and be happy about it. Over 50 years, you'll be able to retire and you'll have whatever, making your 2% a year. So yeah, I don't believe that's true, obviously. But I think basically when the dot-com bubble burst, that was really the last time that retail investors were heavily involved in stocks. They've kind of moved on to flipping houses for about four or five years there. And then I don't know what they've been doing since the financial crisis in 2008-9. They definitely haven't been watching CNBC and they haven't been trading stocks until this last little episode of GameStop and before that. So now you've got like 9 million people following the Reddit Wall Street Bets thread. And I think it's good. I think people should try. I think they should experiment. I mean, the only way that I learned making terrible mistakes. That's the only path to wisdom is making awful, painful mistakes. And hopefully you don't die from them and you're able to kind of keep going. So I think people should be more educated. They should maybe not put all their money into stocks, but they should have experience with it. And I think that's what I'm trying to teach my own children. So I think it's positive. So you have investors, obviously, as in your hedge fund. First of all, where do they come from? And are they very experienced investors? I imagine they are hedge funds and you should have a pretty significant minimum investment. You're selling your skill set as an investor and somebody's buying that. That's really what you do when you invest with someone. And I'm interested in that process. And, you know, you've been in the industry in a variety of different ways. And so, as you said, you had a big Rolodex, you knew a lot of people, but you're also not the billionaire hedge fund player that you, you mentioned, Cohen and others. So people are making a big bet with you. So I'm curious about that process. How did you get your first investor? I mean, you probably had your own money to start because if you don't, nobody wants to invest to start with. But how did you get your first investor? How did that kind of start to take off? Well, the funny thing is it goes back to Yahoo. And so the story is that, you know, obviously I was doing my Yahoo campaign in 2008 and I was making these arguments, writing articles, saying that the management hadn't done enough to unlock the value there. But one of the things that they did do very smartly during that period of time was that in 2005, and Jerry Yang was really the guy who was responsible for this. They made a $1 billion investment in Alibaba. They bought 40% of Alibaba, which was a private company then in China. That was sort of like an Amazon, eBay, PayPal, all rolled into one back then. And it was pretty extraordinary. And Twitter didn't exist really in 2005. And I try to think of a public company. At the time they made the investment, they only had $1.3 billion in cash on their balance sheet. And they just go off and they write a check for a billion to buy 40% of this Chinese company, which in 2005, you know, it was uh, questionable. I mean, debatable, I guess. Is the market really going to take off over there or not or whatever? There's going to be these political issues, other things that come up. Some of which have come up recently, but that's a different story. Right. 
So anyway, they do that. And I was familiar with Alibaba because of that investment. And it was sitting there on the balance sheet, but it wasn't really reflected in the price. If you did like a sum of the parts analysis on it, of Yahoo, you'd first look at the American business and then you'd say, well, they also have this investment, Alibaba, and then they've got this other, got the pan and stuff, you know, put it all together. Cash should be worth X amount or whatever. But it was clear like the U.S. investors weren't paying any attention or giving any value to the stake in Alibaba. So in 2010, I was over in China for the first time ever. I was sort of traveling around, visiting different public companies over there, trying to you know understand the country and the economy and so forth. Came back to Hong Kong and I was about to fly home. I had a couple of days in Hong Kong. And I knew that even though the main operations for Alibaba were in a place called Hangzhou in China, the finance operations were in Hong Kong. And so... I just fired off a cold email to uh, this guy named Joe Tsai, who was the CFO at that time in 2010, saying, Hi, Joe, you don't know me. My name is Eric Jackson. I'm from North America. And I've been an investor in Yahoo. And I've been very happy as a Yahoo shareholder that they made that investment in you way back when. And I would love to come and, and meet you. And to my surprise, like 30 minutes later, he emailed back and said, Yeah, I've read your stuff. You know, come on over uh, this afternoon. So I went and met him and spent about 90 minutes with him. And at the time, they were in the midst of trying to buy back some of that 40% stake from Yahoo, because I think they knew that at some point in the future, they were going to have an IPO. And why would you not want to have as much of the pre-IPO stake back in your own pocket compared to... 40% is pretty large, but he wasn't getting anywhere at the time with Yahoo. So we were talking about that. And I got an education in that conversation about you know just how big Alibaba was and how quickly they were growing and so forth. So I went back home and I kind of did my analysis based off of what public information that I could find. And I thought, holy cow, you know, if this was a, a US company getting like an Amazon style multiple, even back then in 2010, at the time they were valued privately at $10 billion. But I felt like in a couple of years, they were going to be worth perhaps like over $100 billion. And really, the only question in my mind is, were investors going to say, this should be valued like an American company, or should we discount it by 50% because this is China, it's an emerging market, and all these risks, got to discount it and so forth. So I took a number in in between, and I got to $75 billion by three years out, like by 2014. So I wrote up this article in thestreet.com in February of 2011, basically, you know, my case of why Alibaba is going to be worth $75 billion by uh, 2014. And I uh, immediately got all this attention, you know, all these people like back to Alibaba employees were like, oh, well, I own stock. And if you think if this thing is worth $75 billion, I'll sell you my shares for $75 billion right now. But then I remember getting a call from a guy named Gordy Crawford, who was, at the time, he was the biggest investor in Yahoo. He ran a mutual fund called Capital Research in LA, it was sort of like a group of funds. He was sort of like a tech guy. He was a friend of John Malone's and stuff. And he said, Eric, I read your article on Alibaba. I think it's crazy. No Chinese company is ever going to be worth $75 billion. It's just not going to happen. There's no rule of law over there. How can you say that? Like the biggest company today is Baidu. And they were, I think they were around $20 billion at the time. So I said, well, you know, Gordy, I respectfully disagree and stuff. So they did end up IPOing in 2014. And when they started trading, they were valued at over $200 billion. So they got the American size multiple. 200, 200 billion, you said, yeah. not 50, not 75, not 100, 200. Yeah, and almost 250, actually. Immediately, people were just taken. They were smitten by this company. The growth metrics were like off the chart and stuff. So I um, ended up getting a lot of you know kudos at the time. Like, oh, wow, you really called it, Eric, you know, back in, yeah. in 
in that article. Anyway, a couple of years later, I met up with someone who was a tech executive and he said he wanted to have coffee with me. And he said, you know, I still remember you wrote that article on Alibaba way before anyone else. Nobody over here was talking about Alibaba for probably not until like late 2013. And he said, uh, you know, that was a good call. He said, well, how about I give you some money to manage for me? Because I think you should be doing that kind of stuff all the time on other companies. Stop messing around with this activism stuff. You know, because like, why, why do you want to do that? Just do this kind of analysis. You know, put your money in. You don't have to bash management over the head. Hold your position for like you should have done with Alibaba. And you should be able to make some great returns. So I said, sounds good to me. So he became the initial investor with me. So he wrote a check uh, a few months later after I got all the regulatory approvals and stuff to get started. I put some of my money in. That's how it started. That's a great story, Eric, and tells you something about how everything we do plants various seeds, some good seeds, some bad seeds out there and how these things kind of, I mean, your career is particularly interesting like that because you've done a lot of different things all in the general umbrella of business and leadership and investment. And so you can see how these various kind of pieces start to interconnect over time. And I think there is a lesson here for people, younger people earlier in their career, thinking about careers and how to manage their careers. It's a lot of lessons, actually, One certainly around not just simply networking, but how wherever you go and whatever you do, you're basically advertising yourself as a talent of some type. And it could be a good ad or a bad ad. But it also points out something I like as an idea, which is kind of a portfolio approach to a career. Many people think you have to do one thing and just keep on going, and many people still do. But some of the most exciting things and interesting ways to live a life is by mixing it up. I mean, that's one of the greatest things about kind of an academic career is that you're able to do that. You're able to do all sorts of things. You've, of course, gone further than that with some of the things you've done. I mean, you were a journalist, really, at some point when you were writing those articles. I mean, you had other stuff going on, but you were a journalist. And so it's interesting to see how that all, uh, all turns out. And I think there's some important lessons there. You asked before about what's it like when you pitch new investors. One of the interesting things is that I agree with you what you just said. Like my wife would say it's been 20 years of like wandering around, yeah. driving her up the wall, like wondering what the hell am I doing? You know, one stop along the way, I'm working for a tech company and then I'm working for a management consulting company. Then I'm doing some Yahoo campaign and trying to do an activist fund. And then I've ended up here. It didn't make sense at the time a lot of times. But when I'm pitching new investors, I find that there is a formulaic approach. There are certain patterns that you can tell that they're used to, boxes they're used to ticking off in their due diligence for hedge fund managers, right? And so I guess if I was advising my sons or daughters, the easiest way to go would be like, well, go to some hotshot East Coast college like Harvard or Virginia, Princeton, you know, one of, the, one of the Ivy Leagues, but have some connection to some hedge fund and just go immediately start working for that star hedge fund as whatever, some grunt analyst, whatever, but just do your stint working there for four or five years. Hopefully you get a chance eventually to manage some money for them and show your stuff. And what tends to happen then is that when they get to their like late 20s, they are seen as these boy or girl wonders. And they go to their boss running the hedge fund and they say, well, I'd like to spin off and I'd like to start my own. And the boss says, okay, that's great. You know, I'm going to write you your first check, but I'm going to take a big chunk of your business. And usually they're fine. That's an equitable trade because they get to go off and for a long time, there was a guy named Julian Robertson who started this Tiger hedge fund a long time ago. And then all his protégés became known as the Tiger Cubs because they sort of followed this path and they would each go off and start their own hedge fund. And probably the most famous one now is a guy named Chase Coleman, who's still a young guy. And he runs this, I think they're up to like $30 billion or maybe it's $40 billion now. It's a tech-focused fund, but you know now they've gotten into like other interesting stuff. But massive, massive success. 
but by, he's still- By the way, Eric, before you go on, it's funny you mentioned Julian Robertson because that's one of the people I profile in Superbosses. I even interviewed Chase Coleman, who was very, very uh, interesting in talking about the mentorship and the way that Julian worked with him. And there was some really interesting less. Julian turns out to be a leadership management genius, not just an investment genius, uh, which not everybody uh, understands. But I think when you see the track record, you just described these tiger cubs. That's about management. It's about picking talent, but it's also about figuring out a way to lead them down a particular path. So your background being as kind of eclectic as it was is not the standard thing. And no. so they Well, it's in, in fact, it's seen as a negative. Not, not as a positive, even though. Negative. So my brain is in the super boss brain and super boss world. It would be seen as a giant positive because they look for unusual talent. There's standard talent and that's fine. But then there's unusual talent. And the people that change the world the most are the unusual talent. Talented right. People. Yeah. And I mean, as I look back on what's helped me be successful just in these last, whatever, three, three and a half years since I started my hedge fund, you know, I can point to like every stint in the career gave me something. So you know, even going back to when I was a PhD student, obviously, you and I had to learn a, a minimum amount of statistics, right? But enough statistics to know, even today, everyone's out there talking about machine learning and AI, and isn't this so cool? And we can just input all this data, and the machine is going to spit back all these answers. But, you know, even if you have that kind of basic framework, I'm in the middle of trying to build up a data science team within my hedge fund. And so I get to ask lots of dumb questions, like what's so special about this approach versus just linear regression? You know, why are we doing it this way and not this way? You know, the other day, the data scientist came back and said, well, you know, we couldn't find any link between this, you know, independent variable and this outcome variable. And I said, can you show me the scatter plot? Because I remember learning that from Don Hammer. Just show me the scatter plot. Show me the correlation tables for this, this, and this. And I really want to go through this kind of line by line and really see if, in fact, your conclusion is correct, or we should go a little deeper here, there. Maybe there's an interaction variable, all this kind of stuff. So the social contacts that I made with Yahoo and obviously have been really helpful for me. I don't know if the journalist part or writing articles, the one good thing is that it forces you to really be clear on what your belief is, what your argument is, because as an investor, you know, you sort of got to write a story. You don't have to have a story in mind of like how you think this is going to play out. So it's all helpful. But for a lot of investors, they are sophisticated. Like you say, these are family offices. These are endowments. These are pension funds. These are university folks at Dartmouth, you know, managing uh, the endowment for Dartmouth. You know, they all talk about they want a, a repeatable process, which I'm not sure exactly what that is, but they want to feel like you're just going to be able to come up with these market beating ideas over and over again. They want to poke you and prod you and say, well, okay, you had a good year last year, but didn't just the, all the multiples for all the tech stocks go up? Couldn't any monkey have thrown darts and picked Twilio, and gotten lucky on Zoom and all this kind of stuff and generated just as much? How do we know you're going to be able to do that next year and the year after and so forth? So I give my best song and dance answers that I can. And <laughs> it, work, it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. But you know, hopefully over time, performance trumps everything. That's the one good and bad thing about the hedge fund industry. I think it's the most Darwinian industry in the world. You can't brown nose your way to success in the hedge fund world. You can't play politics and you just basically just have to perform. So, and if you yeah. do, you, yeah. you can do well. If you don't, you're out, of, you're, you're out of a career. It's a little bit like sports because there are some crystal clear metrics on performance and they're public. You make them public if you want any money from anyone. And so you could tell, but so many other things, if you think about you know, evaluating a CEO, which you know something about. How do you do that? What are the metrics? Well, you could say, well, let's look at the stock price. Well, the stock price is affected by so many things that the CEO has no influence over whatsoever, and only partially so. And then who's responsible for it? Is it the CEO or is it the 20 people on the, on the team? Or is it the 10,000 people? Or is it the bet 
that uh, this crazy guy did to buy Alibaba uh, when Yahoo was going down the drain. It's just a lot tougher to evaluate. You know, I used to do research on compensation, CEO compensation. What's a CEO worth? Question where I'm talking about now is what's anybody worth? How good are they? And there are a lot of fields where it's really soft. It's really hard to figure out. And so that's where you get to kind of the money ball story, right? You get the baseball scouts that use, you know, he looks strong and tough to go back to, uh, you know, some of Michael Lewis's examples in the beginning of that book. He looked at Billy Bean, who was six foot four and really muscular and tough. The guy couldn't hit anything, but he sure looked like a baseball player. So yeah, there's crystal clear metrics. It doesn't much matter other than, you know, what produce, what you do. And it takes a certain character, I think, to say, okay, I'm going to live and die by that. So you mentioned before, and I think it'd be worth clarifying a little bit. I think you talked about Fangs and, you know, these companies that are going to be the next Microsofts and Facebooks at all. First of all, could you explain for the, the lay audience just what that is? And then second, are there some companies you're looking at now that you think could actually do such a thing? Could become, I mean, is it possible for anyone to enter the exalted world of the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons and the Apples at all, given their unbelievable market power today? Well, I think all of the FANG stocks are phenomenal companies. We can have a discussion on whether we like what Facebook's doing or has done and all that, but just judging them as sort of business enterprises and their ability Mm -hmm. to make money, there's a reason why they're all successful. I would be very shocked if they don't all continue to be very successful for the next Mm -hmm. 20 years. I mean, you can quote me chapter and verse on companies that thought that in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and then it wasn't the case. But I do think they are all formidable companies. And so I would never be so bold to think that Twilio that I'm investing in at a $5 billion market cap is going to unseat them. I think sometimes like a few years ago, Facebook overtook MySpace. Mm -hmm. And MySpace just kind of disappeared, kind of became nothing. And then people remember, you know, recency bias, they remember these stories. So then everybody said, well, who's going to take over Apple? Who's going to do the same thing to, you know, Apple that Facebook did to MySpace? I don't think any of those are going to go the path of MySpace. Like I said before, I think there are a lot of exciting companies out there who have the chance to 5, 10, 20, even, I mean, I've got a couple of companies in my portfolio that I sincerely hope will be 100x returners over the next three, four or five years or something like that. I just want to find like lots of those kinds of companies, you know, and I hope like five years from now, if we do a podcast like this, you know, my reputation will be like, well, that Eric's the guy who he always finds these interesting stocks that nobody's talking about them on CNBC when he invests in them. But when he gets out of them or a couple of years later, they're all the rage. They're all the most popular. They're the sexy names at the time. I want to keep finding, unearthing those kinds of stories. And how do you do that? I mean, I think you just have to think about what are going to be really important little niches, like we said before, in our world. And sometimes uh, it's like last year, like when the pandemic hits, to me anyway, I didn't expect it was going to become a global pandemic. But when it did, you had to think like, is this going to be long lasting? Or is this going to be a blip and things are going to go back to normal by June? My view at the time, and I could have been wrong, was that it was going to be much longer lasting than people I think the predominant view was that it was going to be just like a little thing. Oh, isn't this terrible now? We got to shut the NBA season down. But, you know, maybe in a couple of months, they'll sort this all out and we'll go, go back to normal. If you have that point of view, okay, I think it's going to go on for a year. And my other point of view was that the longer people have to adjust to this new reality and change their own behaviors, they're going to create new behaviors. They're going to be new patterns. So what are the companies that are going to benefit from those new patterns in this new world that we're all living in? So I was lucky enough to already be an investor in a company called HelloFresh, which was like a meal delivery, home delivery company listed in Germany. But 
I obviously believed even more in that thesis, in that world. I became an investor in DocuSign because I felt like the world has to continue, but we're going to have to keep signing documents to buy and sell houses or do whatever we need to do. And so how are we going to do that if we can't go and have someone notarize our signatures and all this kind of stuff? Well, not DocuSign, obviously Zoom. So I guess within all these little niche areas, I try to find like what company has a good shot of being like the leader, the category leader in that company. And then the market always tends to fall in love with those leaders. Their multiples expand are much higher than the number two or number three. And then all the value investors go on TV and say, oh, isn't this ridiculous? You know, I'm going to invest in the number three in this space because I think it's multiple should be similar to the number one player and so forth. And if that just happened, then my return would be X and all this kind of stuff. So very simply, you know, that's what I try to do is sort of peek around corners and try to think of you know what things are going to be really important in a year or two or three from now and try to position myself now. Right. And so now that we're in February of 2021, and we're coming up to at least in North America, one year, it was March 11th, give or take a day that everything stopped. Broadway went dark. All of a sudden we knew this was something really bad. And some people knew before, but that's when it really became so we're at 11 months already. If we were talking you know, six months from now or a year from now, are you still thinking that this is, is the pandemic and the after effects of the pandemic? Do you think that's still going to affect and create these kind of new connections in everyday life that will affect what kinds of companies will do well versus others? Or are we kind of essentially through this stage? I know there's a lot we got longer to go just because of the vaccines, but in terms of investment thesis and portfolio, you think we're through the stage of looking at the effects of the pandemic on deciding what the next really good investment might be? No, not entirely. I mean, it's amazing how the consensus view is always wrong. And so you always want to be aware what the consensus view is at any point in time. But people really like to oversimplify the world, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a desire all last year, like in May, July, to say, okay, well, now it's over. Now the Zooms of the world had a good run. Now it's time to position back in the old stalwarts, you know, like the post-vaccine companies that are going to come back. And, you know, things went on and on. And it turned out not to be a great time to get out of growth stocks and pile into value stocks, like a lot of people were saying. So my answer to you is somewhat nuanced in that. I think there are going to be a lot of winners from the pandemic age where the biggest poster child would be Amazon, where are you going to go back to using Amazon less, even once you and your family are vaccinated, you start to go out and go on trips and vacations? I don't think so. I think that's been a secular behavior change. It's sort of accelerated, probably a trend that was going to happen eventually, but it's not going to go back. It's not going to drop down. There will be some, maybe the meal kit company, for example, they still have good opportunities in front of them, but obviously they got a huge tailwind in, in 2020. So whether that's going to be a good investment for the next year or so, you, you'd have to look at like, what are the consensus views on Wall Street of what their revenues will be? Are they too optimistic and so forth? You have to do that kind of analysis. I think there will be some old line companies that definitely will benefit, like you say, when the world gets back to normal. I would expect like a lot of people are going to want to jump on planes and go to Disney World mm -hmm. and just get out of the house and go on trips and go to the Mayan Riviera and all this kind of stuff. But there will be others, there will be other older names where they don't see that return to normal that maybe they're expecting now. So I have to look stock by stock and, and try to do my analysis of like this one will continue to do well, this one won't, so I'm going to get out of it or it's time to get into this new stock because I think there's some new trend emerging here that they can be a leader. One thing that I'm really hearing from the CEOs and other senior executives that I talk to, and we'll see whether it's true, but they talk about BAU, business as usual. And they say that it's, it really is over this time because so many things have changed and been forced to change and far beyond just the obvious people working remotely. 
And, you know, what will happen when things start to calm down, that vaccine actually does get to work and get into enough people to get to herd immunity. Will these leaders, will these companies truly continue to kind of blow up their operating model? Or will they say, oh, finally, thank God we can go back to just doing what we've always done. We've been successful. Nobody knows the answer to that. But that to me is a really interesting question because they are talking the talk. That is for sure. And many companies I know, they're acting that way. They're doing things very, very differently, but they have no choice that or go out of business. And most people don't like to make that choice. Do you have any sense of whether this will be kind of when we look back in business history, this will be the inflection point that will have led to an era of not just innovation, but changing business practices, maybe even more risk-taking on the part of companies, bigger companies, which would be definitely a difference from historic trends. I think so. Like, I don't think the world is going to completely change overnight. Just like I don't think the Wall Street bets crowd is changing Wall Street. But, you know, you have obviously the pandemic. You've got the Me Too stuff of the last few years and the Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, all that together makes me think that, yeah, there is going to be probably some major shift in views and attitudes and expectations throughout, you know, layers of organizations. I don't think everyone's going to be working at home forever. I mean, I think there is still going to be an office. There's going to be a desire to be in HQ. There's going to be a desire to be close in proximity to your boss to kind of develop that more personal relationship that even though Zoom is great, uh, you know, can't fully replicate yet. But I think that a lot of people are going to expect to work from home a couple of days a week for large swaths of the organization. Yeah. So. Right. I mean, you see it in real estate as well with people buying homes. This is more reading newspaper anecdote as opposed to raw data. But I suspect the raw data is going to be supportive, which is people buying homes in places like New Hampshire and Vermont because you could work remotely. Why not be in a beautiful place where you could get a house for you know cheaper than a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco? Will that disappear? No, I don't think it's going to disappear. It might not be at the same pace because there is something great about living in San Francisco and New York City and these other great global cities. But some of these changes have already happened. I have a question about podcasts, and then we're going to wrap up. Since I've gotten into podcasts, being the host and creator of the SIDCast, and I'm loving it, it's just a chance to talk to sometimes people I don't know, sometimes people I've known for years and have great conversations, but it's about the podcast business, and there's so much turmoil around that. There's questions about you know different players buying up some of the kind of brand name podcasts, distribution channels, Amazon's in podcasting. Do you have any opinion on how to make money in the podcast business other than the ultra elite that have this big brand name? That already didn't matter what they would do, they would produce, you know, advertising dollars. I'm not even thinking about it as an individual podcaster, but more, what's the business model for success in the podcast business? When basically it's a free good, it doesn't cost anyone to listen to this podcast. And there are a million others as well. I don't know if you've looked at that at all. I know you've looked at entertainment and the analogies in music and obviously Netflix and streaming. And there are connections there in, in logic, but I haven't quite figured out what direction it's going to go. Yeah, I've definitely looked at, I haven't owned Spotify, you know, and you could say I've been wrong to not invest in Spotify. Spotify has used and is using podcasts as a way of kind of differentiating its service from other competitors and getting away from a business model where they constantly have to pay out royalties for playing music to, you know, having this asset in the podcast that nobody else has, like in the case of them, like Joe Rogan is probably their, right. their marquee one. So I think the best way to make money in this space is to become the next Joe Rogan Sid, or if you can like somehow turn the Sidcast into being this anchor tenant of some media entity that has all these other interesting podcasts on it, and then you can sell your company to one of these, you know, Sirius or Pandora or 
Spotify or Apple as a means of them differentiating themselves. I mean, I think that's going to be the best way to make money. But the less glib answer is to say there's going to be advertising money made here. And, you know, I haven't seen all you know, detailed reports, but I have seen some information that, you know, obviously podcast is a much more personal experience that people have. If it becomes a daily habit, like the New York Times Daily podcast or something like that, it's a very powerful asset. And suddenly having audio ads played during that daily habit, it's a very unique value proposition that you're giving some advertisers. So I think it will continue to, you know, the big names, the big ones in sports and in business and in politics, I think will continue to have large audiences and, and will do well. I had one of these as well for a while, but I think I stopped doing mine in 2018. It's a marathon, as I'm sure you know, and there's a lot of thought process that goes into planning the guests and the questions and so forth. And it can be really rewarding and you can really learn a lot as a host. And it's a great way of having people hear you and your thought process and making them uh, excited with you. And you never know where, you know, like, like my own story with writing that Alibaba, mm -hmm. you never know who's going to read it, you never know mm -hmm. who's going to listen to it and be taken by it. So I don't think it's some panacea for uh, the media industry. In general, like everyone's now struggling thinking of like, how do we make money at streaming services? How do we make money at podcasts? How do we make, you know, nobody's going to our websites like they once used to. Mm -hmm. uh, we're making nothing from these like little banner ads that we used to, to put around them. So in general, I think the long-term secular trend for media is not very bright, but there are going to be these like rays of sunshine and these Joe Rogan's stars that emerge in each of these niches that will certainly do well. Yeah, I mean, when you look at streaming, you look at it in terms of television, Amazon's video, but Netflix, obviously. Look at Disney. They just announced, what, over 20 million new subscribers. Disney is some magical brand. My goodness. People are not going to theme parks much, but they're still figuring out. And I don't think their streaming service can possibly make up for that revenue shortfall. But once things go back to quote unquote normal, they're going to have this streaming business and it's going to make them a lot of money because they have these unique assets. It's quite interesting. It's impressive yeah. to me to see how Disney is figured out how to leverage, not just now recently, but for 25 years, leverage their content, their unique assets that people love, the shows, the TV, the characters in so many different ways. I love Disney. You know, it's probably my favorite media company out there. I own the sock. And I don't know, I've never asked Bob Iger if he truly understood what he was buying when he bought Marvel and he bought Lucasfilm. He probably did. I think sometimes companies make these acquisitions that end up being you know, game-changing in hindsight, and that they actually were kind of ignorant to some of the things that, you know, at the time that they made the decisions. The thing I often think about with them is that now, not only do they have their 70 or 80 years of, like, Disney characters, they've got all these Marvel characters, they've got the Star Wars characters, you're never going to replicate, and people are going to love forever. But can you imagine if... You know, they paid almost nothing for Marvel and what, I don't know what, four billion for Lucasfilm. So like, at the time that was considered a lot of money. Now it seems mm -hmm. kind of small. But can you imagine if Netflix had just been a little further along in its development? Don't you think that guy who's smart as Reed Hastings would not have like paid triple or 10x what Bob Iger was going to pay to buy? If suddenly Netflix had landed Marvel and Netflix also landed Lucasfilm how the whole world is, is so different. So, you know, whether it was luck or skill, Disney's got the assets, nobody else is getting them. They've got a great team and organization. I think they'll continue to do well. And at one point, we will all go back to theme parks and all the parents of the world will shell out way more money for their families to go visit those places than they ever imagined. That they and, and we'll be smiling while they do it when they see their kids. Generation after generation, which is also kind of amazing that the, these characters keep on going. Eric, great conversation. I have a favorite last question. You may know what it is. Uh, I know you've listened to some of the episodes. It's about advice 
except it's advice you'd give to yourself. So if you can magically go back in time to when you were, say, 21 years old, and you can go back and see the 21-year-old Eric Jackson and lean over to him and say, you know, Eric, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to think about, it's one thing you want to do or not do, what would you tell yourself at the age of 21 about life, about anything you'd like that would be this valuable piece of advice for yourself? Anything I've had successful in my career and my personal life has come through. Um, there have been major periods of pain before getting there. And lots of times where I thought about heading to the off-ramp and just packing it in and not persevering. And the persevering, even at the point where you think you don't know how you're going to do it, always has led to amazing things on the other side. So it would just be that. And it would have been nice to know a little bit earlier on in my, where I was headed. I'll probably try to help my kids be a little bit less uh, nomadic than I was, but I hope I impart that perseverance because that's made all the difference for me. And I'm sure it's the same. It's true for lots of other people as well. Yeah, that's great advice. This is a great way to wrap up season two, Eric. Thank you for being the guest on our last episode of season two and continued great success in the hedge fund business and all the other stuff you're up to. Thanks, Ed. I look forward to season three. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.